0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Talk Music Podcast. This week's very special guest is what I call a song expert, and he's got the credentials to back that up, as he's published over 250 songs recorded by major artists such as Cher, Kiss, Joan Jett, and tons of others. But that's not all he's about, far from it as he's also lobbied the U.S. government for change to certain music-related intellectual laws and has been successful. He also founded and was president of the International Managers Forum in New York. He's also consulted on movies, managed artists, and his keen knowledge of the music business is second to none. My guest is Barry Bergman. Been cool. Hi, Barry, and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast.
1: Pleasure to be here, Tom.
0: I'm thrilled to have you join me, and for our listeners who don't know how we know each other, well, uh, we go back quite a ways, me and you, to when I was producing Helix, and we were looking for some extra songs. And you know what? I got to thank you again for the big save back then as you came to our rescue as you were managing some great songwriters. So my first question really is, how much do you remember of how we met and what memories do you have of our relationship that started way back then?
1: Yeah, I remember we met in the early '80s up at Screen Gems, the music publisher, where my writer Bob Halligan was, uh, you know, working out of at the time. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Helix, and I, we were very excited on our end. And uh, the result of that meeting was Rock You.
0: Yes, I'm glad you brought that up right away since that ended up being their um signature song for the band, and it blew them up on the rock radio charts and of course got them heavy video plays so that is one of my personal highlights of that time period and so having that- that song come up with one of your writers was you know the difference between the band still being around fifty years later or not because uh that song blew up, and then you also had uh, another couple of songs where your writers were involved. Uh, Mark Ribbler is another one that uh, wrote a song called Good to the Last Drop, which uh, was also a radio hit up here. And then my personal favorite song was also co-written by Bob Halligan, and that's Deep Cuts the Knife. with Paul Hackman, who unfortunately had a tragic accident. So, uh, you were, uh, instrumental in, uh, helping break, break the band.
1: Well, if I recall, I gave Helix all of their hits basically. <laughs>
0: well, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> so, you know, um, again, I'm thanking you for that because that propelled my career as well as a producer. And, um, It was just an all-round great team effort, as I really enjoyed working with... That was a win-win for all of us. It was. And uh, Bill Saipu, who was the manager who who retired, I guess, a few years ago, I do only have great memories of all of us collaborating and working together, as I said, as a team, including with Capitol Records, who did a great job for us. So I just wanted to sort of start off our conversation there.
1: And I still have a relationship with Bill.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: Over 40 years later.
0: That's fantastic. Okay, so let's start with your career trajectory and start at the beginning. I'm going to start with you hanging out in Greenwich Village in the 60s, if that's okay.
1: Well, my career trajectory actually starts even before that. Well, go ahead. It started in the 50s when my father, who worked seven days a week, took a day off and took me to the first Alan Freed rock and roll show.
0: Wow, that's cool.
1: And Alan Freed was a disc jockey from Cleveland, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And he came to New York City uh, at a station, 1010 Winds, and he was like a Svengali. Whatever he said would be a hit, became a hit. And he was the first one ever to do rock and roll shows. Oh, to bring in 10, 12, 13 acts. They do their top singles. Mm-hmm. A house band, and he, in fact, uh, created the name
0: uh, rock and roll. It used to be called race music. I didn't know any of that. That's very interesting trivia, there. Yeah,
1: so my father took a day off and on a Sunday, and he took me to the show. We stood online three hours to get tickets, it was like the event of all events. And when I got in there and I'm looking at the stage. I said, holy smokes, this is what I'm going to do with my life. You know, I don't want to do anything else. I want to be involved uh, in with music because music was my thing anyway. When I would come home from school at a young age of 10, 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever, I would uh, listen to my 45s back in those days. So uh, da- dad is what really started it off. And then later on, I would... Uh, Hang out went hung out in Greenwich Village because I went to NYU, New York University in Greenwich Village.
0: You did? Yes. And you took uh, marketing, I believe, which is interesting. But uh
1: Yeah, marketing and management. Okay. And uh as a result of that, I used to be down there and there were all the clubs. And I think I saw practically every major act of the day back then at the
0: club called the the, the bitter end. Any Bob Dylan sightings or, uh, or anything like yes, that? Yes,
1: there was Bob Dylan played there,
0: yes. Oh, okay.
1: Yes, Bob Dylan, uh, Jackson Brown, uh, Joni Mitchell, you name them, they were there,
0: and I've seen them all. That was their breeding ground, so to speak.
1: Yes, that was the club at the time. Okay. And it's still alive, but it's not
0: what it was. No, for sure. Okay, so then... Um, Interestingly, you were taking marketing then at university? Was that... Um,
1: marketing and management.
0: And was that already sort of uh, you thinking that you want to be in the music business, but not necessarily up front? you want to be behind the scenes?
1: No, that was as a result of the fact that I originally went to an engineering
0: school. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting.
1: An engineering high
0: school. Okay.
1: Uh, Brooklyn Technical High School. And you had to take an exam to get in. And the sad part of it all is I passed the exam because I was not a lover of school. It was not my thing.
0: <laughs> no, you're okay.
1: And I uh, wanted to get out of there in the worst way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't stand dust, never mind machine shops and all these other shops. I'm, I'm uh, taking in with all the uh, the dirt and everything else. I'm getting all around. So as a result of it, I've said to myself, I got to get out of here. And the only way I figured to get out of there was to fail out. So I, uh, you know, did my best and I failed out. And then two and a half years in, they called my parents up as a, when I was a kid back then.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They told them that they're going to have to take me out. I, I don't uh, can't get the grades to, get, to graduate there. So I went to my local high school, which was Erasmus Hall High School. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I got out of there, graduated from there, but I didn't have grades to get into college. And, you know, everybody gave up on me. My mother, my father, my aunts, my uncles, everybody said, he's never going to make it, you know, and all of that garbage. And as a result of it, I said, to I woke up one day and I said, you know, I'm going to prove them all wrong. I'm going to, you know, go to college and graduate. Mm-hmm. Not that I wanted to. It was all on a, you know, it was all on the fact that they all uh, were writing me off. So I went ahead. I filled out applications for NYU, which was on the top of my wish list, City College of New York, and a college in Staten Island called Wagner College. Mm-hmm. Rejected by all of them. Filed again. Rejected by all of them. I said, you know, I'm gonna go to NYU. So I I wrote a letter to the dean, a guy named Abraham Gitlau, and I uh, made an appointment to go see him. Okay. I got, got and I had no idea what I would say, but I went to his office, I got an appointment, and I said to him that I really wanted to go to NYU, and that uh, my grades were not uh, representative of my abilities, and that uh, I really wanted to be there. I'm not looking for any... uh, you know, aid, any financial aid. I'm not looking for this. I'm not looking for that. I'm just looking for a chance. Okay. And he kept telling me, Barry, we have to have standards around here. We can't just let anybody in because they want to come here. I said, look out your door here. What do you see? He said, loads of students through the window. You know, he saw the students. I said, I'll tell you what I see. A bunch of kids here who are here because their mothers and fathers wanted them to be here. I'm sitting here because I want to be here, not my mother and father. And I told him, my mother and father don't even believe I can uh, do this. Mm-hmm. And I need a chance. You're sitting in the seat that can give me that chance and that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's hassling with me back and forth. So I said to him, I came up with an idea. I said, I have an idea. I said, here's what I, what I would like to present. How about you give me one semester? six months. And if I get passing grades, I keep going. And if I don't, I voluntarily leave and I don't bring any uh, problems to anybody here. Nobody will have to, you know, worry about the fact that I'm here. Well, the windup was, you know, he said, well, let me talk to some people and we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. And a couple of weeks later, I got a letter from them stating they were going to give me a conditional acceptance. If I passed, you know terms if I pass the the semester, I keep going, if not, I have to withdraw and I'm an n y u graduate
0: i'm gonna all i'm gonna say is it's impressive that you you were able to get in, which you you obviously have that sort of drive inherent in your personality and and it started right there. I can see where you know you parlayed that sort of uh, not taking no for an answer, you know, right away, already at, at an early age.
1: Well, I've, I've done that my whole life. It's very right when I take no for an answer.
0: And I'm glad you brought up that as an example when you were young and it worked for you. So let's go from you graduating New York University then, or New York U, I guess it was, yeah, um, called... Where did you go from there? Because I think you then ended up with your first job at Edward B. Marks Music Corporation.
1: No, first I went to Wall
0: Street. Okay, you did. Okay, there first.
1: I was, uh, you know, I needed to get a job. The war was going, Vietnam, and uh, I was 1A. You know, and I I said to myself, if I got to be miserable, I I try to get a job in the music business. But uh, I couldn't. It wasn't happening. So I said to myself, if I got to be miserable, let me make some money. I would have worked for nothing in the music business at that point. So I said, well, let me make some money. So I went down to Wall Street. I started knocking on doors. And uh, I met this woman, Anna Mae Colby, at a company called Steiner Rousen Company. And we had a lovely talk. And uh, she said, and, and she, she was teaching the uh, training program so one can get their license. And she had a class coming up in a couple of weeks. So I said to her, I'd love to be in the class. I'd love to get my license and be a broker. And she said to me, well, I don't pick the people. I just uh, teach the class. So I said to her, who does? And she said, this gentleman, Eddie Mirabella, one of the senior partners. Mm-hmm. And I, my response to her was, well, I'd like to meet him. Can I see him for five minutes? And she said to me, no, you can't. He's not here. He's in the hospital. He's going to have some elective surgery. And going back to what you said before, that you do things that are unusual, everything I do is unusual. <laughs> because I came home afterwards. I wished her well and thanked her. I came home. I went through what we used to call a telephone book. And I called every I called every hospital in the telephone book until I found them. And I got them on the phone and I introduced myself and I told him that uh, I met Miss Colby today. She did not give me your phone number. Uh, she just told me you were in a hospital and I went home and called every hospital until I found you. And he said to me, what? I said, yeah, you heard me. And I said I wanted to get into the training program, and she said you do all the hiring. And he said to me, anybody that would do that, I'm hiring. He said, <laughs> You'll, he said I'll call her in the morning. You start in two weeks.
0: You just don't take you you just don't take no for an answer. I mean, uh, no. <laughs> that's two examples already. Uh, you know, and you're just starting your career. There'll be more. I'm sure there will be.
1: So I went ahead and thought I'd be on Wall Street for a year, maybe two. And a year or two ended up seven. I kept trying to get into the music business. It was not happening. And I just kept going. Meanwhile, I had a little production company with a friend of mine. And uh, he was like my best friend at the time. He was a producer and a songwriter. Mm -hmm. And he uh, wrote, uh, he had some hits. He wrote the Jay and the Americans hit, She Cried name was ted darrell and lo and behold in 1974 he got the job at mark's music Ah. and i said to myself wow now i'm gonna get in because he was my partner in the production company and i was financing it with my wall street money perfect so uh i said now i'm gonna get in but it didn't work that way he wasn't fast to get want to get me in he felt insecure about it so there I was, you know, still uh, on Wall Street, and da 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 da. And I, 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 I made. I was thinking at the time of possibly moving to California. And he flipped out when he heard that I was possibly going to move to L.A. So he got me a meeting up at Mark's Music with Joe Auslander, the then president, and uh, I got hired. So now Teddy was my. Uh, My best friend at the time, he was my ex-partner, and now he's my boss at Mark's Music.
0: So was that a major turning point for you right there, stepping in the door and getting that job? It must have been because you'd spent seven years trying to get in, and they were a pretty successful publishing company at that time, were they not?
1: Uh, They were an old line publishing company. They went back to 1894, Okay. family-run business, and the whole family hated each other. You know, and uh, it was wild. And the company was run by Joe, who was an accountant. And I never, you know, heard of a music company being run by an accountant. But my idea at the time, and I think I was the first to come up with this idea, was for us to sign uh, singer-songwriters or groups, so we would have the whole album of songs, not just one song for a cover, recorded.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Teddy wanted he wanted to produce records. He couldn't care less about what I wanted to do. Because I felt the future was going to be in having every song on the, on an album, therefore a label couldn't make a mistake and
0: we would have the singles no matter what. So what was your position there? Creative director or something like that?
1: I started out as professional manager and two years later I was made vice president. Okay. And my first signing up there was an act called Meatloaf.
0: Well, that's astounding.
1: That was my first signing. And I was, uh, that was two years before he got a record deal with what is now Sony. It was CBS at the time. It was through Cleveland International, through Epic Records. And uh, my second signing was a band called ACDC. Little <laughs> okay. did I know that I had two acts that each would have an album that would be one of the best sellers of all time in recorded music.
0: Okay, so let's let's go deep there a bit. Um, how did you have the vision to sign two iconic artists like that? What, what gave you that talent to to go, I, I, I feel this, I think this is going to, you know, these are going to be successful acts because, of course, they've become two of the biggest, you know, that we've ever had. So uh, explain a little bit of what went through your head.
1: Well, with Meatloaf, I thought it was the songs. The songs were phenomenal. And uh, the one thing I learned years ago is uh, when you're in business for yourself, you can do whatever you want. When you work for people, as I was at the time, right. you're there to ring the cash register. You're not there to love everything. And you got to do what you really believe is going to ring that cash register. And uh, so what happened is I went ahead and I was uh, a friend of mine uh, who hung out at Mark's Music told me about Meatloaf, and I went to see him at a tri- what they called a tribute to Reno Sweeney's at Carnegie Hall. Reno Sweeney's was a club in the Village, and Carnegie Hall was one of our major venues. And there was a series of people on that day, and Meatloaf did uh, you know three or four songs, just with him and uh, Jim Steinman at the keyboards and Rory Dodd and. The- and uh the girl behind them doing backgrounds. Okay. I thought the songs were amazing. I thought every song sounded like a hit. And uh, I still believe that today, <laughs> you know, that I love every song in that album. And uh, I thought he was amazing. You know, here it is a guy 350 pounds who looked like a meatloaf, and uh He just belted away and he had what I call the X factor, you know, and I just felt it. I just said, wow, we're going to get this one. I have to have this. And sure enough, we got that. ACDC was a different story. I had seen a video that somebody uh, showed me uh, a little, uh, you know, it was not even a great video back in those days, Mm -hmm. a live show. And I said, wow. And I, uh, you know, spoke to the people involved at the Jay Alberts, and uh, we had a deal with them anyway. Mark's Music had an arrangement with them. And I said, we want, I want ACDC, got to have them, because I thought the live show was the best thing I've saw in years. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear a hit. I did not hear a hit.
0: Okay, that's interesting.
1: But I knew the hit would come. Because those kinds of acts have to play live; those are touring acts that have to play live.
0: Okay, so to, so to be clear here, so you signed them to a publishing deal, not a record deal.
1: No, we. I they were signed to Alberts. We signed. We had a deal with Alberts, and and we put ACDC dc into the deal.
0: Okay, but it was a publishing deal. Yes. What I'd like you to do, since you're an expert on publishing and songs, I would like you to maybe just very briefly explain what publishing was in those days. And of course, it's changed now uh, somewhat. But uh, why don't you just quickly explain what that means? You sign them to a publishing deal for the layman out, uh, people out there listening, because it's it is a complicated uh issue trying to explain this was not a record company but you were working for a publishing company yeah music publishing company. and music publishing as everybody probably now knows is where all the money is and where the acts survive when they get older and hence you know we'll get into that a little bit later on so just give give me give me a little uh, very brief background about publishing
1: well, the, the music publisher is the overseer of the copyright of the songs okay they're the ones that are supposed to exploit the songs, collect the the monies for the songs, collect the monies from the labels.
0: They're supposed to go after around the world. Them.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, but we had this was more a sub publishing deal for America. We didn't have it for the world.
0: Okay, you were doing you were dealing for with America in this in this case. Sure.
1: Yeah, we had it for the, we had it for you know, I think it was the U.S. and Canada for North America.
0: Okay, got it.
1: So, uh, basically, it was our job to exploit the band. Uh, the publisher should exploit the uh, the songs by you know helping the band mm-hmm. and, you know, collect all the royalties, you know, go after sync licenses if there are any. And a sync license is getting the music into a TV show, yes, or getting the music into a motion picture. Yes, or, or getting the music uh, into a commercial. Yep, and there's also if it goes into like a Broadway show music. Let's say they're doing a retrospective on an act that's called Grand Rights. Right, and that's basically what a music publisher does.
0: Okay, well that's 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 good. I'm glad you're explaining it simply there, uh, because we all see these commercials on TV, and of course they can be quite lucrative. Uh, depending on who the company is and they are and and in some cases um, artists can make money from those for for a lifetime um, although i'm not sure if that's exactly happening anymore
1: no that doesn't happen it didn't it didn't happen back then either okay it only happens for mo- motion pictures and t v got it if those shows are continually played
0: okay so let's go back to you've you've signed two incredible artists here. You must have been on cloud nine as far as, you know, realizing that you just started off with uh, a couple of amazing artists. And were you then already thinking that, okay, what's my next move? Where do I go from here? Because you were vice president there.
1: No, I, I, I wasn't on cloud nine because they hadn't exploded
0: yet. Yet. okay, so you were. On Cloud Nine, that you got them signed and you felt good about their potential, but you—they—yeah,
1: the... but I really worked the acts. I did. I acted more like a manager act okay, than the publisher. And I—I I spent a lot of money on them, a lot of the company money to get these acts going. I did promotions that uh, you know nobody ever did.
0: Okay, that's that's great. I'd like to hear that that story, Barry, because I
1: got AC/DC, the key to the city of North Miami, with the mayor. Mm-hmm. a major thing because the press came out and afterwards the mayor was called the rock and roll mayor by the Miami Herald. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of different things. I traveled with ACDC. I, uh, I broke the meatloaf single. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, two out of three ain't bad. I was responsible for breaking that. I th- I was the only one that thought that was the single everyone else was going with other tracks. And I, did all the things, I went up and above and beyond what a music publisher does.
0: So Barry, is it safe to say that that was also sort of uh, a learning curve for you, because this was your first company you were this active at, so you were still also learning what what should be done out there, and you all you, it sounds like you went way above and beyond what probably other publishers were doing, which probably also made you stand out.
1: Well, I, the reason I did that, Tom, was because... If these things didn't work, I would have been out of work looking for a job. Good point. (laughs) I said, I'm going to go do all the things that I think are going to work. Okay. And Lord willing, they work. And fortunately, they did.
0: Okay. So let's fast forward a bit to how many years were you there and where did you go from there?
1: I was there, uh, you know, I was there until 1979, from 75 to 9. Okay. And I, we broke those two acts. And I also, we had uh, uh, What a Difference a Day Makes, a cover with uh, Esther Phillips. We had disco hits. You know, the thing that was amazing about those two acts, and people said it today, or say it to me even today, how did you go with those two acts when the trend was disco? The first half of the 70s was California singer-songwriters. The second half, from 75 to 80, was disco. And you come up with a hard rock band, and then you come up with a guy that people think belongs on Broadway.
0: Yes, that's actually a a good question. (laughs) Let's hear the answer.
1: Yes, the answer is very simple. People don't realize... That there's only one of everything. There was only one Donna Summer. There was only one Richie Family, and one of this and one of that. The minute something happens in this industry, everybody's looking for ten more Bon Jovis, ten more uh, Drakes, and uh, you know they're probably looking now for more Taylor Swifts and everything else.
0: Of course. But yes,
1: I felt that what I was doing stood out. You know, there was nothing like it.
0: Well, as you just pointed out, there hasn't really been another AC/DC. There's been clones galore over the years. And Meatloaf is another one. I mean, I can't think of another... Uh, nothing comes close. Nothing comes close. No. Nope. So
1: what happened, and I remember Angus Young would call me up, and I remember ACDC when they played for five people. You know, now they can fill a stadium. But... Uh, you know, they were playing for five and ten people, but they were so great at what they did that, uh, you know, the five people became ten, ten became twenty, forty or eighty, a hundred, and it kept multiplying. You know, that's how good they were.
0: And the end result, of course, was was a, a career that's lasted till today where they just actually played last week, I believe. Uh, yeah. Uh, they came out of uh, semi-retirement and they've sold, I don't know how many tens of millions in their career, so... You were there in the beginning.
1: I was there in the beginning, and I still have a relationship 45 years later with the living.
0: That's fantastic.
1: In fact, I saw Angus the last time he was in New York. In 2000, they played at the Garden here. In fact, I can go on record to say the following. Uh, along the way, they threw me a surprise birthday party at Madison Square Garden. I have a birthday card from them.
0: That's amazing.
1: I still have the card. It's on my Instagram page. And they also put me in in the CD of Let There Be Rock. This CD, they put my photo in there and talked about how I, you know, got them the key to the city, Miami. Out of fourteen thousand photos, they put this one in there.
0: Oh yes, <laughs> that's a great shot. Wow. I hope you have that framed somewhere.
1: (laughs) And I also made my singing debut with them.
0: And I don't sing. (laughs) I know. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) We're doing a live at the Atlantic
1: Studios album. And uh, there was 400 people in the studio. And I was there sitting in the bleachers. And during the song, The Jack, Bon Scott looks around. And he's looking all over the place. And all of a sudden, he's pushing people out of the way. And he runs up into the bleachers there. And he shoves the mic in my mouth and says, Sing it, Barry.
0: <laughs> oh, you're kidding I'm singing
1: with him, <laughs> And you can hear it on uh there's an album called uh uh Live at the Atlantic Studios and it's in the bonfire
0: box set. That's wild.
1: You know, so that happened That's
0: gotta that's gotta be one of your 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 big highlights. I know you've had many in your career, but that's gotta be one of them.
1: Well that was I loved every minute of working with them. They're fantastic people.
0: Yeah. And I
1: knew they would come up with a hit, and they did. They came up with with a couple of them.
0: Okay, so you were there again for, uh, you you left, uh, what year was it? 1979, I left Mark's Music. 79, okay.
1: 1974, Tom, I couldn't get a job in the business. In 1979, everybody was waving checks to hire
0: me. So where did you end up after that?
1: I went to United Artists Music Publishing, the film company. I did all the music for the, uh, you know, I I ran the whole uh, creative uh, for the film company.
0: I believe you were vice president of creative affairs from what I, uh, yes. Yes. Okay. Um, So they were considered a major publisher at that time. They weren't a label too, were they? No.
1: Yes, they were.
0: Oh, they were, right. Okay, so they were also, also a label at that time. Okay. So, how did that major career move happen? and tell me about some of those highlights uh while you were working there?:
1: The best thing that happened there for me. well, I, I brought in uh, Bob Halligan and his band pictures, who I met at Marks when I was at Mark's Music, and I brought in this fellow Rob Friedman, yep uh, when I from when I met him at Mark's Music. I knew them both a few years. Mm-hmm. and I promised them, I wanted to sign them, I thought they would both be successful, and uh, Halligan and Friedman, and I uh, told them, I'll sign you the day I get to wherever I'm going, I'm going to be leaving here, because Mark's music was great, but I was being held back every step of the way.
0: It was time to time to move on for you, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was time to move on at 79, so I ended up uh, And so I ended up signing Bob Halligan and Rob Friedman and and Bob's band when I got to United Artists. I brought them in there and we put them on a retainer. Yes. And uh, what ended up happening there was the company tried to jerk them around after a year and a half. And what I'll never understand is we are in an industry where everybody's trying to screw the geese that lays the golden eggs which doesn't make any sense to me. If it were not for the creators, there'd be no industry. If it were not for the artists, the producers, the engineers, and everybody else. So I fought my boss at UA. Uh-huh. i never forget this. I, I fought with him about this. He wanted an extension on their agreements, which I told the kids, don't worry about it. Just You're not signing it because he didn't want to give them you know some more money and I you know I knew that uh, we could afford it because I had the checkbook. Yeah. He, he didn't want to give them any more money. So uh, the windup was I had a blow up with him in uh, 81 and he fired me. you know and I was devastated at the time, okay. But I would not, I protected those kids. You know, with the creators, I, I'm on the side of the creator, always have and always will be, even though I was working for the corporation. You know, I. It, it didn't make sense to me. And I'll never forget when I was in that meeting where he fired me, you know, he asks me the following question. He says, Barry, on a scale of one to 10, how do you rate your performance here?
0: <laughs> it's a loaded question. What, was, what would you say? Well, I'd give myself a pretty high mark if I if, I, if I was confident in what my abilities were, which I'm I, sure you were. I
1: told, him, I told him, Tom, I told him a zero. Oh. And he said, okay. what? A zero? What he said to me, how did you arrive at zero? I said, it's very simple. When you ask a stupid question, I give you a stupid answer. <laughs> that was what he fired me.
0: Really, just based on? Well, I mean, I'm sure it goes a bit deeper than that.
1: Well, it was leading up to that.
0: It was leading up. To yeah, I'm sure there's there's some other issues, but uh, no, the issues were I was fighting him with the kids. I wouldn't get But it, it sounds like it was oil and water. Like you just weren't you weren't blending together with him. No,
1: we got along great because we're best of friends since. Really. We didn't talk for five years and we made up. Okay. You know, I have a saying: they all come back when they know they're wrong. They all come back, <laughs> and he did. <laughs>
0: okay so so that was enough for for you though to to leave the corporate world from what i gather from reading about you you that was when you probably said enough of this shit
1: well i said to myself nobody's ever gonna fire me ever again i'm going out on my own
0: okay and so that was when you did and we've now entered the 80s right
1: that was in 80 late 81
0: So we're in the 80s. You've got fired from United Artists Music with a funny story, I must say. Best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, Yes, it it was.
1: And I have a favorite saying with that, Tom. 40 years ago or whatever it was, 42 years ago, my greatest fear in life was not having a job and not having a paycheck. 42 years later today, my greatest fear in life is having to get a job. (laughs) It'll never happen.
0: (laughs) That's right. Okay, so we're into the uh, early 80s here, uh, Barry. So your plan was then to manage songwriters and recording artists as well, correct? Yes, and and to publish songs. If And I to could. publish songs, right. So were, were there any successful companies or managers at that time who had sort of a blueprint as how how to be successful that you were sort of following? Or were you just sort of, okay, I'm just going to go out and do this on my own, and it's the Wild West out there? and I'm just going to knock on doors and start hustling. Is that basically what what you're?
1: That's the way I worked. No, I, I don't go looking, I don't ask anybody how I should do something. I go out and I do things, if they work, I did it. If they don't work, I did that also.
0: Let's be honest though, that's no easy gig to hustle and some people just can't do it and others can. You're obviously one of those who always could but a lot of people well, are very uncomfortable with it I know I could
1: that. or I couldn't, Tom. I just said to myself, "I'm going to try." <laughs> okay, and we'll see what happens. But I've but something I've really grown to realize over the years is that when you go out in the world in general and you make decisions and you do things, if you made the right decisions, it works.
0: Yes, true. And I had to be my own person. So again, I'm just wondering what what was it in in your personality that just made you go. Okay, I'm just going to start making cold calls. I'm going to, you know, you're going to, you start getting rejection after rejection because you're a song plugging. That's not an easy gig.
1: I was song plugging to a uh,
0: to a degree, among although you believed in your in your. And how many songwriters did you have it uh, when you started? A, a couple.
1: I had Bob and Rob.
0: Okay, so you had two.
1: I had two, and I had no songs in my catalog, basically. But what happens, you know, after the first year, I'll tell you what happened, which was it'll never happen to anybody. So many things that have happened in my life will never happen to anybody, (laughs) you know, and the way it happened. I stayed in touch with Bob and Rob the first year that I was out on my own. I didn't have them yet because uh, Rob was dropped from UA. He was dropped and I parked him somewhere so he could stay alive. I had friends of mine take care of him and Bob they held on to for another year. So a year later in 82, uh mid-82 or whenever it was, you know, I was t- talking to Bob and Rob and you know I stayed in touch with them all through the uh the downtime. Mm-hmm. And I honestly didn't know how anything was going to unfold or what was going to happen. But uh, I went out to lunch with them in the uh you know in 82 sometime in 82 and At the lunch, Bob says to me, you know, Barry, nobody's ever cared about me like you have. You know, you protected me at UA. You know, uh, you've always been there for me. You really cared about us. Mm -hmm. I said, well, that's true. He said, I spoke to my wife last night, and here's what I want to propose. And I never said this publicly until 2003. This was in 82. Mm -hmm. He said, Barry, here's what I want to propose. I want to give you half of my copyrights for nothing. Let's go build something. I nearly fell off my seat. Okay. And And he looks at Rob Friedman and he says to Rob, are you in or are you out? And Rob said, I'm in. And that was how I went into business, out of the air. I'm walking up 6th Avenue with the two of them. I'm looking up at the sky and I'm saying, here we are, three dreamers. And now I'm looking for a fourth
0: dreamer. They believed in you.
1: Oh, totally. And here we are 40-something years later, they're both still in my life. Even though we're not working together, Where they're both still in my life.
0: That's a great story. Sometimes in life, you just have to run with it if you really feel good about somebody that really cares about you, which you did.
1: Tom, I've not gone into business. I must have worked with 30, 40 people over the years, and I got to know every one of them before I went into business with them. And I can say the following. Even having success in 42 years, I've never once had a lawsuit.
0: That's unheard of.
1: (laughs) Because I, I had a plan on how I would do business. And I had this all figured out in my head. And, you know, I teach this stuff in my seminar that I do now. But I had a plan, and I executed my plan.
0: I I love that story uh, a lot because it just, you know, it's it's, it's heartwarming, really. So let's move to, I don't know when this came up, but then you had a big hit with Paul Kerrick's Don't Shed a Tear. And that was by by Rob, correct? Rob Friedman. Rob Friedman. And that was a huge uh, hit around the world. Was it not Barry? It was a top 10 hit.
1: Yes, that was a big record
0: around the world.
1: I'll tell you how that happened. Please do. I went when I was at UA, I met a guy named Frank Davies from Toronto. And Frank and I became good friends. Mm -hmm. And when I went out on my own, And Frank ended up going out on his own. He was the president of ATV, Sony ATV, and then he went out on his own. He called me one day and he said, Barry, I'd like to come to New York and talk to you. I said, fine. You know, we got together and he said to me, I would like to be your representative and your sub-publisher in Canada. Okay. And I said, but Frank, I have no songs. I have one or two songs or whatever. He said, Barry... I want to do it now because I'm not concerned about you having success. I just want to be there at the beginning because later on, I won't be able to afford
0: you. Oh, interesting.
1: He really, he was a believer. He was a real believer. And he says, I I have a checkbook and I'm going to write you a check. So I want to represent you. And that was probably the best decision I ever made to say yes. And I'll tell you why. Because Frank calls me one day uh, in the mid-80s, and he says to me, Barry, I have a songwriter that I represent, Eddie Schwartz, who's a big Canadian songwriter. He He lives in Nashville now. Yes. And he said, you have Rob Friedman. I'd like to put them together because I believe they'll come up with a hit. And we put them together, and Don't Shed a Tear came out of that session. And then we got it covered with Paul Carrick, which opened up all the doors.
0: I didn't know that Eddie was also involved in the song. I didn't know that. Yes. Okay. Was Paul Carrick at that time, um, I mean, how did this become a huge hit? I guess that's another story. We, you know, It'll probably take too long to explain, but to get a top 10 hit is like a you know you've got to have a, a whole bunch of things working in sync for you to get a, a top 10 hit and at any time in, in and
1: Paul Carrick was on Chrysalis and Danny Glass really believed in the record okay and I had spoken to him a lot about it and this and that and the next thing and Danny Glass was a promotion man back then Danny got his own label Glass Note and has a bunch of hit acts sent and uh, Danny made it a hit
0: Okay, so that's that's huge. So so you're 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 all of a sudden on the map in a big way. Like you're all of a sudden top 10 from uh, you know having a meeting with three guys staring at each other, looking at the sky going, what am I going to do next to having a top 10 hit. So uh, how many years later was that after that meeting you had where this hit this became a hit?
1: That was 6 years later.
0: Oh. Okay, so you were hustling for them for 6 years until Uh, 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 you know, you you hit the the bullseye with, which is basically a top 10 It is incredible, really.
1: Yeah. And prior to that, I signed another guy, Mark Ribler, in 1985. Right. And uh, he uh, would come to me every week and play me music, and I didn't believe in it. And he came to me every week religiously, and he would bring a pie or a cake or something. We'd listen to music, and he did that for two years. Until one day he comes to me with a song that I thought, wow, there's something finally here. So I said to him, Mark, if uh, what I think we ought to do is I think I should team you up with Bob Halligan. He and you should finish the song together. And uh, if you do, I'll get this thing covered within 30 days. Because I know where I'm going to go. OK. And uh The windup was, I put them together, they came up with the song, and I got it covered by Lee Aaron.
0: Oh, okay, sure. She was a big deal in those days uh, on Attic Records, I believe. Yes. So, is it safe to say then, Barry, that in the '80s, and we're talking like we're in the '80s now, that you were, you know, you were out there hustling every day? Uh, this was also the boom period of our of our business, where some artists were selling tens of millions in those days. Um, uh, and you 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 were dabbling in hard rock because uh, that's basically, you know, Lee Aaron was in hard rock, Helix was in hard rock, so that was kind of a bit of, of your pathway in, the, in those days. Well, I
1: ended up there, but I was basically in all the genres. Yes. Because I had uh, contemporary Christians uh, hits, I had country, I had uh, pop, I, you know, I did them all.
0: Okay, so let's move to the 90s from the 80s.
1: Well, I think we we should, there's one item we should talk about that came the night, right after Don't Shed a Tear. I got a call in 1989, I think it was, mm-hmm. uh, from Tunch Haram, who was the head of a at the time at Atlantic Records here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He says to me, Barry, we have an act called Kicks. Sure. Uh, it's a rock band from Maryland. And he said, we make albums with them, and we always uh, put them out, we put three tracks out or whatever, and we sell 200,000 albums, and, and it drops dead. He said, You have a guy named Bob Halligan. I said, Yes. He said, I Barry, I would like to know can we put Bob Halligan together with Donnie Purnell, who's the router in kicks? Sure. I said, Yes, we can do that. That's not a problem. And I put them together and they came up with a song called Don't Close Your Eyes.
0: How big did that get?
1: That when in Billboard, that hit n- number 11.
0: Oh, fantastic!
1: It was huge, it was a ballad, it was huge. That's great. So, everybody at Atlantic Records thought that that song was a smash, and they and it ended up on the album uh, with another one that the guys wrote together. Mm-hmm. And uh, the windup was the album came out in 1990, mm-hmm. I think it was
0: 1990.
1: Yep, and uh. The wind-up was that uh, the Atlantic puts out a song, it's not ours, and it sells what it sells. Then they put out a second single and a, a second track, it sells what it sells. And they put out a third track, and they don't put out, don't close your eyes. And there are three tracks in, and where do you think they're at sales-wise? 200,000.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: is where they're always at. Well, I lost it. I ran up to Atlantic Records like a, a commando and started screaming like a madman. I can see that. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah. you guys told me you believe this is a hit. So what are we waiting for? You mean three tracks you've done already. What happened here? I said, I want that track to come out.
0: As a fourth single? Yes. Okay, which That's was which that, was unusual to go that deep. They never did that no,
1: but i I pushed and I pushed and I pushed and they released the track, and the rest was history the the track
0: itself sold over two million that I didn't know. thank you for bringing that up
1: and the album sold couple of million okay that was the track that broke the band
0: that's a great story i'm I'm so happy you brought that up because um. That fell a little bit under my radar. I knew that there was a song with kicks. I had no idea about that. (laughs)
1: Oh, that was a big song for us. And I'll go on record and say the following. That song, I've had that since in about 60 compilations.
0: Unbelievable. Really?
1: Yeah. 60, 70 maybe compilations. It's been in films also, and it's been elsewhere.
0: Okay. That's fantastic good for you you re- and i love your um perseverance i guess i'll say and you just, you just realized that hey who else is going to do this except me if i don't go up and pound on the door there with uh you know get them to do a fourth single this album's going to die and and uh you know uh, you've made history there for, for for the band and for for uh for atlantic good for you and as a
1: result of it tom Donnie Purnell, down the road became a client of mine
0: ah beautiful
1: and I represented him for 25 years.
0: Okay, that's that's great. Thank you for that story. Okay, can we go to the 90s now? Because we're in them. I'm going to give you some major props here because you became president of the International Managers Forum in the United States, and you founded it as well. So I would love I would love you to illuminate uh, me, please, on the IMF, what it's all about, and how that all came came together. Is that must be something you're extremely proud of.
1: It's probably the best thing I ever did in my entire
0: career. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's it's
1: the number one trade association today in, in the States.
0: No, it's a it's a remarkable achievement that that you know you, you founded it. So can you go deep on that for me, please?
1: Yes. I got a call one day from a friend of mine, uh Lisa Schmidt. She worked at ASCAP at the time. Yeah. And you know, she said, Barry, there's a crew of people coming in from the, uh, from the UK and they, uh, they're starting a little organization over there. They started it already. Mm -hmm. The IMF, the international managers forum, Mm -hmm. they're going to have a meeting uptown and, uh, we should go. I said, fine, let's go and see what it's all about. Okay. So I go to the meeting, there's three, 400 people there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they're talking about the fact that they want to start this organization there and they'd like something to happen in the States because the corporations are too powerful, and we got to start challenging them and taking them on and protecting artists and managers, et cetera, because there's no protections whatsoever for managers and for artists. yep. And, you know, what they were saying at the day is really resonated with me. And people in the audience are saying to them, How do you do this? Can you help us? Can you show us? And I'm listening to all. And they're saying, well, you guys got to put something together and do it. Your issues are different in America than ours are in the UK, which is true. Yep. The wind up is I'm listening to all of this, and I raise my hand, and they recognize me, and I say to them the following. I say, hey, I'll tell you how this works. Everybody who's interested in this room and doing something, you give me a business card and three, of, three to four weeks from now, I will call you. And that's how it begins.
0: That's how it starts. OK, so you're there in the meeting. Everybody's giving you their cards and you had the foresight to go, OK, somebody needs to organize this and I'm going to do it.
1: And the reason why I said I'll call you all, I did it all myself. I said, the reason why I'll call, the the reason why I said I'll call them in three, four weeks is because I wanted to find out who was real. You know, when you're at a revival meeting, everybody's excited.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Three weeks later, you don't know how excited they still are. Got it. started calling them a few weeks later, and I found out there was only two people in the whole crowd of 35 that were really interested. That's it. Two out of 35.
0: Oh, that's that's a low <laughs> amount of people. Oh,
1: and I and that's how it began. I started with uh, those two people, myself and my friend Lisa. She was uh, she came in, and I started to put it all together and run it. And then I started calling friends in the business to join.
0: Okay, and of course it snowballed, and you know, today. I mean, can you? I mean,
1: well, it, I mean. There was an issue coming up, which I saw, which was the Digital Performance Right Act. You know, uh, there was going to be, I saw digital performances coming. I didn't know when. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, Congress was going to uh, do some hearings on this topic. And the labels were going to be there and the unions. Nobody's representing a manager. And I said to the I, I put together a little board of the, of the few members we had. Yes. And I said to them, we gotta go get involved in this issue in Washington. And they all said to me, Who do we know in Washington? I said, No one. I said, I'll get to I'll I'll front this thing and I'll do it, and I'll get to meet people, and you guys just do the paperwork and everything behind me. I'll be the front man. You guys do the rest. And the windup was, they had a hearing set uh, for June of uh, 95, and I made 41 phone calls to Congress to try to get someone on the phone that would hear what I had to say. I called in the morning. I called at lunchtime. I called in the evening. I could call at all different times and see if I could get somebody on the phone that would hear what I have to say not just get somebody and take a message and you never hear from somebody. On my 41st phone call, an attorney picked it up who represented the uh uh the uh, committee in Congress and uh I said to my I said to them, you're having hearings coming up on digital performance rights. I know you want to do the right thing, but how could you do the right thing when you have no managers or recording artists being represented? And all of a sudden he stopped dead in his tracks and he said, This is interesting. Tell me what you have on your mind. And I said to him, I said, if in order to have a fair and you know, reasonable hearing, you gotta have the people that it involves represented. And he agreed. And we spoke for a while. And he says to me the following: He said, Mr. Bergman, let me have your information. He said, Let me talk to the powers to be here. And he said, "We'll see uh, you know what happens here, and somebody will get back to you." I had no idea what that meant or anything. Sure. A couple of weeks later, the phone rings, and I got invited to testify at the hearing. And that was the turning point because I uh, we wrote the te- I wrote up the testimony. I went to uh, Congress. Uh, I rehearsed with some of my members who came out with me the night before.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: they grill me later on after you speak they were going to ask questions and we were in the morning rehearsing and i gotta tell you i should have went to sleep early for this nine o'clock hearing because everything we rehearsed was never asked they asked questions that we never rehearsed and the windup was i remember the first question that they asked was how much of this new pot of gold, if it's to happen, uh, do you think order should get? And I figured, let me crack a little joke, because let me break the ice here with them. And I said to them, of course, we should get 100 <laughs> percent. And, uh, you know, we'll know that it's going to happen. Right. And uh, and then the, the congressman looked at me and said, you're right. It's not going to happen. I said, well, I'll tell you what's fair. 50% for creators and 50% for the copyright owners, which would be the labels in most cases. Right. The labels wanted a whole bag, a pot of gold so that they didn't have to pay anybody. And uh, and, when, and if they would pay somebody, uh, they would deduct videos and tour support and deduct everything else they'd manufacture.
0: And then in um, 2018, you were actually uh, inducted into the Personal Manager's Hall of Fame in Las Vegas. I would love you to uh, talk about that a little bit.
1: 2018, I call that the year of the accolade. For sure. Happened that year that I never pictured humanly possible. And the first thing that happened was in December of
0: 2017,
1: Mm -hmm. a call from Billboard magazine, and they wanted to do lunch. And uh, I did lunch with the, the, the head of uh, one of the heads of sales at Billboard. Mm-hmm. He says to me, you know, Barry, we've been following your career and we've been following the managers forum and everything else you've been doing. And uh, we'd like to do a special on you. I was shocked to hear that. You know, even though the press was always good to us at the MM, the press was always good to me, even early on. But uh, they said they wanted to do a special. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Barry, we're going to find out if you have any friends. I says, what does that
0: mean?
1: He said, we're going to find out if anyone's going to take an ad. You know, I said, well, we'll see.
0: Well, that's one way to find out. Yeah, (laughs) if they have to spend their money on on you. (laughs) because ads cost thousands
1: of dollars. I get this call from the uh, Personal Managers Hall of Fame. And they said, you know, Barry, we've been following your career and following you. And uh, we would like to induct you into the Hall of Fame,
0: which blew my mind. That was in Las Vegas. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. What was that like?
1: Uh, they they do uh, personal managers in the theater, motion pictures, sports, and music, and film. Yeah, and they do, you know, eighty years, something like that. And uh, and I went out to the induction ceremony, and uh, it was fantastic. There were loads of people in the audience. In fact, uh, Elton John's manager at the time, uh, who was a friend of mine, showed up, for mm-hmm. a ticket, and came to the dinner, among others. And uh, it was it was great. So what ended up happening in two thousand and eighteen. You know, with all of this going on, and it was a, a great year, mm-hmm. I said to myself, you know, it's time to start winding down. Because I said to myself, when you have a tremendous year like that, you got see what people don't realize is you got to realize when something is run its course and it's over. Mm-hmm. And I decided it was time to wind down. I didn't want to end up on the Titanic. Got it. You know, because I felt if I kept going, you know, I sustain it forever when i started to wind it all down i i let go of uh the uh my management business i started go of that i started to uh you know work less on the music publishing stuff even though we had loads of successes and royalties still come in
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh i decided to start a seminar you know because i have you know all of this knowledge and all of this you know, stuff that I've done over the years and I've done things out of the box, different than most people do things. So I decided, let me start a seminar and I do this three to four hour class. It usually runs about four hours,
0: mm-hmm.
1: even four and a half. Okay. Do it in an evening. And I only do it three or four, three, four times a year. And I don't do it for more than a dozen people. If we get the dozen people, you know, uh because i want it to be intimate i want people to get the time that they deserve yes focus on on music publishing management marketing promotion and social media you know it's very interesting about social media everybody's got thousands of followers thousands of connections thousands of friends whatever
0: Mm
1: -hmm. do they know you can put them on two hands how? What do they do with all of those thousands of people? It lays there. I teach people how to monetize things. You know, everybody's got an album, but nobody's got a plan how
0: to make money with it. So this is like a coaching and consultation seminar.
1: No, this is a like one evening course in mu- in, the, in, in earning a living in the music industry and things that I've done in the business. And I talk about how I think and how they should think and uh, I give people a lot of insights as to what to do if you wanna if you're in the management business if you're an artist if you're a publisher it's for everybody who's interested okay in the business and I don't charge much I charge 180 bucks for four hours I also have an entertainment attorney that speaks for 45 minutes about protection of copyrights, brands, and trademarks. And he everyone's questions. And I answer everyone's questions along the evening. And people walk away from
0: this thing uh, mesmerized. Well, well, it's invaluable considering... Uh... It's all based on what I've done. It's not
1: based on something I read somewhere. No,
0: I understand that.
1: Um... It's all based on alternative, out-of-the-box thinking. And if people want to learn how to really be successful in this business or more successful, uh, they should go to my website, barrybergman.com and sign up. I have one coming in January.
0: Okay. That's good to know.
1: Yeah. But uh, it it works very, very well. You know, I talk about promotion is a big thing and not only uh, I talk about how I broke the meatloaf single and not only do I talk about how I tell them how I did it, I prove it. I also show them how age is not a factor. There's loads of things that I teach there that I prove. I show them, you know, backup as to, you know, the authenticity of what I'm teaching, of how what happens.
0: Well, I think it would be invaluable for pretty well anybody starting today because uh, there's a tremendous amount of turmoil out there with social media where um, artists don't know... How much time to spend on it, for example, because it's got to be personal. So if you don't have a manager, and a manager shouldn't do it anyway, you're forced to get online, look for followers, because this will lead me into my other... Some of the questions I was going to ask you is, if an artist does want to try to get a record deal today, unfortunately, almost all labels, at least the bigger ones, they're basically looking at your stats first, unfortunately. Um, indie labels are a little bit better, but you know, the social media seems to be the first gauge of, if I'm even going to be interested in an artist, they want the artist to do the work themselves.
1: It's a DIY industry. It's a do it yourself industry.
0: Correct. What I teach. As I said, that's going to be invaluable for artists to pick up that advice because everybody's confused about it right now.
1: Yeah. I would get a lot of calls and people would say, I got a great album. I need a manager to take me to the next level. I never had anyone call me telling me they had a lousy album. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And then I would ask them some questions. How much music have you sold? Well, not a lot. How many followers? How how are your numbers at social media? Not very great. Not great. Uh, How many streams do you have? A couple of thousand. How many? How much of the, can you sell out a few clubs, four or five clubs in a tri-state area? No. I'd say to them, very simply, you don't have anything to manage. There's nothing going on. Correct. And you've got to, so they. the next question they would have, they would ask me is, how will I know when I'm ready for a manager? I said, it's very simple. When you're ready for a manager, because you are doing what you need to do, you won't even have to go look for a manager; they'll find you. And invariably, that's what happens.
0: Invariably, the indie labels will also find you. Yep. Uh the the, the astute ones.
1: And think that most artists need labels. I did things w- without major labels and sold carloads of records.
0: Well, that that yeah, that's a another <laughs> question that I have. All sorts of acts now uh, asking me is why can't I just DIY everything like you can and and let them find me, as you just said, Uh, I don't mind the hard work. So um, uh, one of the things I did want to go deeper with you on Barry, since you are a song expert, uh, you've had, you know, 250 plus songs uh, on Billboard in your, in your career, which is incredibly impressive is what is a great song?
1: I think, you know, as far as I I can't, tell people how to write, I can say it's got to be authentic. It should be something from one's personal experiences. You got to create tremendous imagery. You got to say things in a way in which they haven't been said before. And it's got to, and it can't be moon, June, spoon. And you got to uh, have something with a, uh, that's catchy, whether it's a musical hook, or whether it's a uh, a vocal hook. You know, you need a, a, a something for, for people to grab onto. And you need something, you need to say something lyrically that people can relate to.
0: Another point I just want to make, and I've made this on some of my earlier podcasts, is there's a lot of albums being made, and people are, are still putting them out where 10 songs are being released at a time and frankly there's just way too much clutter out there and it's getting worse there's got to be a limit now to you know does everybody really need to release 10 songs of which we all know one or two are listenable and frankly most people don't have the time to even listen to 10 songs and why should they when the artist isn't very qualified to even put music out there yet that it's basically cluttering up the digital space
1: so those projects are vanity projects that's all they are but uh, in order to be successful nowadays, like I say, we're in a DIY world. You got to have a budget. You can't do things, for, uh, you know, and and not have money of some sort behind you. You got to have something behind you. But there are loads of people, Tom, who you've never heard of, and I've never heard of that are doing very, very, very well today.
0: It's better to spend your time. Maybe getting a co-writer and coming up with two or three great songs as opposed to just putting 10 together by yourself with no co-producer, no manager, no nothing.
1: You can't tell people what to do. They're going to do what they want to do. Whether I I agree with them or disagree with them, that's what they're going to do. And, you know, people got to get it out of their system if it's not right to be. I mean, look, we got people in this world, you know, uh, who uh, went into professions they don't belong in. And this is one of them that people come into that they don't belong in.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Eventually, uh, they're gonna realize when nothing happens, they're not gonna spend another 10,000, 20,000 or whatever to make another record, you know? And they'll realize it's over and they have their vanity project and that's that. But somehow, someway, the people that are meant to be successful come to the forefront.
0: What about a producer? How valuable is a producer these days, in your opinion?
1: Very valuable and very important. You need great arrangements.
0: Mm-hmm, you do. Yep. Okay.
1: You need your record to sound great. It's not going to sound great by itself.
0: <laughs> That's true. I, I I push for that as well when I talk to artists. I'm I'm i even though producers are hard to find good ones and they're not they're not necessarily going to do anything for free. You might want to spend a little extra money and get somebody that has experience in a studio.
1: But then again, you know, uh, maybe the act themselves know what they're doing in the studio. You don't know, because everybody has their home studios nowadays, a lot of people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they can fiddle around and they learn, you know. It's a whole different world. And, uh, you know, we, you know, somehow, someway, there's always music that comes through the clutter. Always.
0: Yeah. And I agree with you. I'm going to go back to what you just said a few minutes ago. I agree. There are plenty of exceptions around the world of artists that I certainly wouldn't know that are making a a great living. Uh, But I bet you their songs are resonating because they're in some way great songs, whatever that might be. It might be two chords. It might be a lyric that just, you know, resonates for whatever reason. I agree. Yeah.
1: I, I will say the following. Sure. Anybody listening to this podcast Uh, uh, is uh, is interested. I will offer the following. If they sign up for my seminar, agree to listen to two of their songs, two of the best songs that they think they have. Okay. After they sign up and after, you know, we do the seminar. And I will critique the songs for them free of charge.
0: Okay, that's a nice offer.
1: Yeah, I'll do that for anybody. uh, You know, if they mention uh, Tom Tremuth's uh, The Talk Music Podcast, I will uh, be more than happy to do that. You know, you can go to my website, sign up for the seminar. It all goes through PayPal. You can uh, just send me an email through the email on my website and tell me how how you signed up through the podcast, and I will listen to two of your songs.
0: Okay. My last question is going to be your thoughts on the streaming, where we're at with it now. Do you see, you know, changes in the future, or is it just it is what it is, work with it, Things are never going to be be what they were, where you could sell 200 CDs at your merch table at the end of a show, and uh, you know you now have to um, think of more clever ways to make make things work. You know, bring bring out five different kinds of shirts, put some ball caps for sale, little coffee mugs, whatever. Just work work with what it is right now.
1: I'm going to say the following. Sure. I discuss at the seminar what to do. Okay. And I answer that question because uh, streaming will always be good. And and people do earn a living from streaming. Yeah. People do earn a living. It's, it's a fallacy that nobody makes money from it. And the payments have been going up. We've been getting better payments. And uh, eventually we'll probably have a uh, digital performance right for uh, terrestrial radio, To terrestrial performances that's probably coming because basically going digital and the uh the broadcasters who have fought it for years are not going to be able to fight it forever because they're going to want decent rates digitally and also what people don't realize we need to get a terrestrial performance right because of all the money that's overseas from music got it We only get paid reciprocally. You know, uh, if if we don't have a performance right, we're not going to get the money out of Europe and Asia and everywhere else. If we have a performance right here, we will send the money that they earn back to them and they will send the money that we earn to us.
0: Got it. So that's an extra revenue stream coming. Yes, I
1: think that will come. Okay,
0: well, that's good. We're ending on a positive note.
1: And I want to say that I think this has been a tremendous experience. I've enjoyed the the last couple of hours. It's been fabulous.
0: For me, too. If
1: anybody is listening and they have any questions for me or anything, go to barrybergman.com. And you can send me an email from there. And, uh, you know, I look forward to uh, entertaining uh, whatever somebody has to say.
0: Barry, it's been a blast. I hope to see you in person. Um you're in new york i'm in close to toronto here we'll we'll hook up at some point point. and again thanks for uh, uh offering your services online and I, I hope some people take you up on it
1: great and thanks for bringing these uh podcasts to the public
0: thank you so much thank you bye-bye
1: bye